the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Six minutes uh, after 6 o'clock in the morning. Dave Ellswick show with you as I always am Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Or somebody sitting in for me when I'm on vacation. But I'm back from vacation, so I'm a happy camper. And I'm a really happy camper, Jr. and Seth. Because yesterday I got my AR-15 12-gauge that I ordered back uh, in February. And it finally arrived at... uh, has been slow coming because of COVID-19, but uh, very interesting uh, to have it in my possession now. I walk around my house, and uh, I, and I keep repeating to myself, you're talking to me, and, uh, you know, doing I'm just kidding. I don't do that. I hope everybody understands that was said totally in jest. If you're watching on uh, Facebook Live, uh, Empty Studio uh, today and tomorrow, uh, we'll be filling it back up on Monday with the uh, power panel. Tuesday, Elizabeth will be back with me. Wednesday, Joe and Duck will uh, I'll be back with me as well. So we're getting back to normal uh, after the hack uh, that happened at Salem and, and getting people back and people understanding that uh, some interesting stories out about COVID. I don't know if you guys saw this or not. Uh, I thought it was uh, well worth talking about uh, just uh, for a few uh, moments, and that is that... The majority of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak that is occurring is occurring in only 1% of the counties in the United States. Did you guys see this? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Does it, you know, by listening to the mainstream media, you wouldn't know that, would you? Uh, no, you uh, certainly, yeah, go ahead, sir. Right, I'll I'll toss it over to you. I was just going to say you certainly wouldn't know that uh, by listening to the mainstream media and and the way that they still talk about uh, a shutdown and the way that Joe Biden has talked about wanting to shut down the country again uh, should he win the election. You wouldn't know that this is relatively confined, that people have taken the appropriate steps to uh, remain socially distanced and adapt to a temporary normal until, as the CDC director, Robert Redfield, and others said, we can get this vaccine and and at some point uh, get to a, a herd immunity on this virus. But, no, you certainly wouldn't know uh, the factor you just cited by listening to the media. What about you, Jack? No, I agree with you. And I, I think, look, you know, 
that's kind of hit all those points there. I just think that as we get closer to the election, what you're seeing, and I think it's actually trickling down from, you know, national to local, that there is becoming a an increasing uh, bias uh, with media. And I know that's something we've talked about before and, and the Trump administration and Trump himself has said this over the last four years, but it really feels like the information that needs to be out there, the information, you know, uh, that used to be regardless of, of party or personality, the facts came out and we're not seeing that, um, uh, down the stretch here in this campaign. And, and I think that, you know, m- more so Dave, uh, that I've seen really ever, uh, is this media bias. Uh, and there's certainly a slant, whether you're watching, you know, national news. And I think you're starting to see it, uh, locally, even here in Arkansas. Yeah, let me just give you, Heritage Foundation has been doing uh, research and, and coming up with where these outbreaks are and mm-hmm. uh, all through the coronavirus pandemic and said that the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. has been heavily concentrated in a small number of states and among a small number of counties within those states. Uh so, you know, it's it's kind of interesting what they have found when they say heavily concentrated. Uh, as of July 14th, for example, just 10 states account for 61% of all U.S. cases and 66% of all the deaths. Now, in those 10 states, you have 62% of the population. What a big surprise here. That if you're jammed in like sardines in places, the coronavirus is is raging like a wildfire at times. And that's not to be unexpected. In fact, that should be totally expected, shouldn't it? Yep. And we've in fact, I, I know a couple that, you know, had lived in New York before this pandemic and is looking to move now. Uh, because uh, seeing what what happens when you lived, as you said, like sardines, so condensed in an area. And so I think this changes a lot of the way people uh, will think in the future about where to live. Another example, California, I think it's in part because of coronavirus. And then when you see things like the other day with Gavin Newsom announcing the governor that uh, in 2035, the state's going to tell you what type of car you can buy. So I, I think there are other factors just aside from living in Los Angeles in such a condensed area. But You've seen Ben Shapiro in the Daily Wire yep. announced that they are moving all of their operations to Nashville. You've seen Joe Rogan, who has the largest uh, podcast in the world, is going to be relocating to Texas. Um, so I, I think you see there's a lot of long-term consequences, and we're going to see that in, in just a year after the census when it comes to congressional reapportionment. What you're going to see is an increase, uh, particularly in the southeast, uh, around Florida, and a decrease up in New York and and in the Northeast. And so there are real-life consequences uh, for people living in these condensed, liberal uh, cities and states. It's going to be interesting. Let me just... No, no, go ahead. uh, It's going to be interesting to see how 
uh, the demographics change as you're talking about there, Seth, as we're seeing people moving out of New York, New Jersey, California, areas like that, and going to other areas of the country and traditionally bright red states suddenly turning a, I would say, at least a hue of purple. Would, yep. would, you, would you agree with that, Jr.? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think Seth hit the nail on the head. You know, talking about the the consensus, and uh, I mean the census, and then the uh, uh, you know what things are going to look like uh, as people start moving from some of these more populated states. And the other thing too uh, is the pandemic has sort of shifted a lot of people's perspective on things. Uh, when you live in a big city, I mean, you live in New York City for, you know, the amenities, the the nightlife, the culture, you know, that's why you live in a big city. When you shut it down completely and you're basically confined to your, you know, uh, 500 square foot apartment that you share with 20 other people, it, it doesn't, you know, uh, it, it, you kind of lose that excitement for living in one of those bigger cities. And so to that point. You know, when the shutdown happened and New York was, you know, absolutely on lockdown, I think it just shifted a lot of people's perspective about and goals. You know, where do I want to live? Where do I want to be? Uh-huh. And we're seeing that in New York State now uh, where people are, or I say, you know, New York State, New York City specifically, that, you know, they're they're moving out. Uh, they're looking for some, you know, greener pastures, literally. Uh, and, and, you know, either they're going back to their hometowns or they're moving back to sort of middle America. And I just think that it's, it's just, it, I think it's the pandemic itself. We talk about what are going to be the fallouts of this. What are we going to realize 10, 20 years later? I think this is going to be that shift. This is going to be something we can absolutely identify as an effect of this pandemic moving forward. Yeah. Let me, let me give you some more numbers here because they're important. Numbers are important if they don't mess with the numbers, okay? That's that's the key. Heritage Foundation says New York and New Jersey alone account for 34% of all the COVID-19 deaths, though they include only 9% of the U.S. population. I mean, you go back and you look at, since COVID-19 came to the United States, uh, a story that came out, during that time that's not talked about as much now as uh you know the governor of new york made some boneheaded decisions about putting covid patients into you know uh, uh you know senior sin uh senior citizen centers and it wrecked hev- havoc with senior citizens killed a lot of people during that time he's been able to weather that storm, whether he'll be able to weather it later on, I don't know. State-level figures do not, however, adequately describe the concentrated nature of the spread of COVID-19. The 30 counties with the most COVID-19 deaths. Okay, how many counties are there in the United States? I don't even know. There's thousands, all right? But 30 of them with the most COVID-19 deaths, for example, account for nearly one-third of all the cases in the U.S. and 49% of all deaths, much greater than their 16% share of the U.S. population. Uh, That is, let's break it down completely for everybody, 
That means just 1% of the counties in the United States, representing 16% of the U.S. population, are responsible for approximately half of the country's COVID-19 deaths. Of those 30 counties, 24 are in the northeast corridor between Philadelphia and Boston. The passageway served by a computer railway system that runs through Manhattan. Overall, only about 10% of the counties in the U.S. contain 90% of all the COVID-19 deaths, even though these counties include 62% of the population. There's a there, there are lessons to be learned in those two paragraphs. Yeah, I really believe. It, it, go ahead, Seth. No, that was me. You go ahead. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I, it, it's astounding. And look, uh, to what you just said, uh, Dave, I think this is going to give Republicans an opportunity unlike we have had in a very long time. And I say that because to the point, Seth, and you both made earlier, uh, people are looking for something different now. They don't like the way these Democratic governors have handled the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, At the beginning, they were lauded for shutting things down, and people quickly realized that, hey, you have some of these states run by Republican governors that while things were, you know, shut down for a time and not across the board, uh, you know, that, that they they actually aren't better off by some of these, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, policies and procedures that have been put in place by these Democrats. And I think Republicans have a real opportunity now where these people are moving from some of these more populated Democratic states to Republican states. We can show them, you know, what that sort of governorship looks like um, and and really bring people into the fold, I think, for the first time in a very long time. We have an opportunity to do that. You know, we'll see how we respond to it. But it's astounding that the media continues to make this a a sort of national crisis uh, when, you know, we're seeing so many of these numbers come from so few states. All right. Got to get a break in, guys. Uh, of course, J.R. Davis is here. He is from the uh, Gilmore Group. Seth Mays is here from the uh, Arkansas GOP. I'm Dave Ellswick. Stay with us. When we come back, Louisville on fire. We'll talk about it in a moment. All right, back at 24 minutes after 6 on a Thursday, the Dave Ellswick Show with J.R. Uh, Davis from the uh, Gilmore Group. And then, of course, don't forget that Seth Mays is here from the Arkansas GOP as my special guest each Thursday morning at uh, 6 o'clock. And, you know, I just wanted people to understand uh, when you break this down, and I just was given information that counties, parishes, about 3,600. So you're talking about 24 counties out of 3,600 plus or minus uh, counties in the United States with 49% of the fatalities. That's significant for you to understand. You don't have to live your life. They're, they're just, you don't need to live your life in fear. Too many people still living their life in fear. I guess, you know, if we all wear masks all through uh, the rest of this year, uh, we should have a, a, a very low uh, accounting as far as how many people get the flu, I would think. 
I mean, that, it just, I mean, that kind of just makes sense to me. I mean, you can always do things that keep you healthier. I mean, if everybody went out and got a flu shot, uh, the number of cases of serious flu would probably drop significantly. But when, you know, half of the people in the United States decide not to get a flu shot, uh, that, that tells you that, uh, you know, you're not doing everything that you can do. And the only way you could ever force that to happen is for a totalitarian government to say, you will do this. I just want people to think. I picked up, you guys are going to love this, I picked up a bumper sticker, not a bumper sticker, a magnet, uh, at a place called uh, Wicket Wheel. It's a place to eat in Panama City uh, Beach, Florida. And it says, think, it's not illegal yet. And, and, I, and I've got that on the side of my refrigerator. And that is the problem in our country right now. It's people not thinking. It's, it's governors like, or mayors like the one in, in Louisville that says, well, I don't want to tell somebody that they shouldn't believe in their, in their truth. What the hell is wrong with you, dude? Right. <laughs> right. You know, I don't get well, that at all. And, and Dave, that goes back to that earlier point, you know, about this is an opportunity for Republicans to step up and, and show, you know, what it looks like to, to lead uh, in, in a way that, you know, really our founding fathers, uh, uh, you know, wanted things to be. I mean, the totalitarian states you're talking about, these governors, it's been sort of scary if you really pay attention to all the different things that they've put into place. They've sort of become these dictator-type governments during this pandemic, and they've used that, used that as an excuse. Whereas, you know, to the contrary, you've seen Republican uh, governors step up to the plate and say, you know, we're not going to shut everything down. We're going to take precautions. We're going to provide guidance and guidelines. Um, and, you know, in some cases, yes, here in Arkansas, we've had a mask mandate. Uh, but, you know, other than that, you you really haven't seen Republican governors have this sort of knee-jerk reaction as you have with with the Democrats. And it's all disingenuous. Every one of them talk about how, you know, we're going to get through this together. We watched the DNC convention. It was this sort of kumbaya. We need real leadership. We need to get through this together. And then you have Kamala Harris coming out saying she wouldn't take the vaccine if it came out. She doesn't trust the Donald Trump administration. Why is that, Dave? It's politics. It's the the worse things get, the better for the Democrats, in their opinion. Uh, and I just think that, again, this is an opportunity that we haven't had in a very long time to show what Republican leadership looks like uh, to to the masses uh, and give them something, you know, really something substantive to think about moving forward. Seth. The only thing I would add, you you know, of course, you invoked Kamala Harris's name and you want to talk about somebody that's going to have a bad month here. One, she's got a vice presidential debate coming up in a couple of weeks, but she's also going to have to sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing for Donald Trump's third Supreme Court nominee coming up as well. soon. So I I can only imagine what the Democrat vice presidential nominee is. Is is going to be thinking on that, but before I'm, I'm sure we will get into that later too. Yes, we are. But on that, yeah. But on that topic of the Democrat management, we had talked about in the break too. These Democrat governors, particularly New York and Michigan, who had these edicts that older folks who had the disease were fine to be sent back to their nursing homes, which of course, specifically in New York, 
caused a huge outbreak among folks, as we mentioned, were very vulnerable, have, have a number of any other comorbidities, as they say now. Um, and then you look at Michigan, where the governor's husband uh, went to his yacht club, which, because of all her edicts, was supposed to not be happening, but said, come on, you know, I'm the, I'm the governor's husband. Aren't I allowed to get my yacht or whatever? So it's, it's a lot of the do what we say, not what we do in these Democrat-governed states. Yeah, I want to just know whether the uh, governor, uh, that's Whitmer, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Michigan, yep. if, her, if her husband has a Trump flag on his yacht. <laughs> I, I'm just, I know that he doesn't. By the way, let's not leave Newsom out of this, because in California, it's incredible what he's done as well. Guys, we got to take a break. we got news coming up. Let's do that. Then when we come back, we got more to talk about. All right, uh, 25 minutes till 7. Our guest, Seth Mays from the Arkansas GOP and J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Group. They join me each Thursday at 6 a.m. Uh, to talk about uh, the big uh, political uh, topics that are out there. we got a lot of those going on right now. Uh, Larry Elder, a uh, talk show host here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, after my 6 o'clock segment uh, in the evening, says in, in a Twitter today, said, In recent years, as least as many unarmed whites have been killed by police, as have unarmed blacks. For 2020, as of June, according to the Washington Post, police shot and killed 14 unarmed blacks and 25 unarmed whites and he ends with name dot 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 one dot 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 unarmed dot 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 white dot 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 victim pertinent point pertinent point uh i've I've seen the science quit making war on the black community and and all of that I don't know how anybody can say that this government or the people of the United States have, have been waging war on the black community when you look at the trillions upon trillions of dollars that have been poured into the black community uh, in the United States of America to combat poverty, racism, uh, all the different things that uh, we, we have fought here in this country moving towards a more perfect union. I think America is a stellar example of a country who's truly trying to um, make things as, a, as equitable as it possibly can be. And people say, well, look at, at some of the, uh, the countries in Europe countries in Europe are not the melting pots that the United States is and uh, some of the things that we've had to deal with. Now they're dealing with it now because they have such huge Muslim uh, populations and they're starting to see uh, problems with that uh, because many of those Muslim uh, people that moved to, you know, England and to France live in little enclaves in different cities in abject poverty. And it's abject poverty that will cause a lot of the problems that we're seeing as far as violence and stuff. Uh, not, uh, uh, not just because what 
a person's race is uh, or racism. What, what say you gentlemen? Well, you mentioned, of course, the, the funding that we've seen for black communities. And this coming Tuesday, we're going to have a presidential debate. And I'm sure in one way or another, Joe Biden will, of course, call Donald Trump a racist. And I'm sure the president will point out the historic funding that his administration did for historically black colleges and universities. That didn't happen under the Obama administration. That has happened under this president's watch. And, of course, we can run through pre-COVID, all the job numbers for Americans of any background, uh, no matter what their skin color was or, or where they came from, you saw rising incomes for about every community, um, Asian, women, African-American, I mean, everything was up for every community in that regard. And so uh, the president certainly has a, a track record um, of accomplishment for the black community. And if the question is, hey, it's the economy, stupid, Moving forward, the question is who's going to who's going to build the best economy for everybody? Well, we know one of the debate topics from Chris Wallace is going to be Biden's record versus Trump's record, because, of course, the president now has had four years and Joe Biden's had 47 years. And we can compare the two and see what one person did in four years that one person in 47 years could never do. In that regard, it's very reminiscent of Hillary Clinton's. Uh, run for office. If you have all these great, wonderful ideas about how to make the country better, where were they for your decades and decades and decades uh, in in some form of government or another? So I think we're going to see a master class in that next Tuesday. Yeah, I think that it's going to be uh, a pretty uh, good night for GOP and for President Trump. And, you know, I think what you're seeing now, and we kind of talked about this, Dave, shortly after uh, the DNC and shortly after Kamala was was picked by Joe Biden as his running mate, that there would be some of these these fractured factions that would start taking place as we get closer to the election. Um, and I think you're starting to see that. You know, overnight there was uh, you know a shooting of two police officers uh, in Louisville and the lead on the article from ABC news says protests turn violent. How many times have we heard that? Has that been the theme of these protests across the country? And there have been a lot of peaceful ones, but there have been a lot of protests that have turned violent uh, because of sort of the current state of our country, as far as uh, what's happening with the civil unrest, et cetera, et cetera. But what was, what was, uh, kind of stark. And, and when you're talking about the contrast here between the presidents, you had Donald Trump tweet out that, you know, we have the backs of law enforcement uh, immediately. You had Joe Biden tweet out, well, while the decision by the grand jury was a devastating decision, yada, 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 yada. We also stand with police and violence is not the answer. So you're, you're seeing this, this sort of rock in a hard spot for Joe Biden in that he's trying to say what he thinks the general electorate want to hear, but also keep the many bases of the Democratic Party uh, happy. And I just think when you get Donald Trump and Joe Biden on stage, Kamala Harris uh, and Mike Pence on stage, those those stark differences are going to be clearer than they've ever been. Uh, and it's going to be really tough for the Democrats to have a cohesive message going into Election Day other than get rid of Trump. Um, and that's what we've seen. I'm, I'm just telling you, it's going to get worse for the Democrats over the next 40 days or so. 
Well, I want to warn you both about something, and that is the bar for Joe Biden continues to be lowered. You know, Joe, you know, if he just shows up, people are going to say he's done a great job. I'm, I'm just telling you. Remember when uh, he was going up against, uh, was it uh, McCain's running mate, Palin, wasn't it? Uh, that uh, they thought Palin would wipe the floor with Joe Biden. And, uh, and, and that didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. And everybody basically gave that debate to Biden. You know, here's the key. Biden, I think, will do well in the first 45 minutes of that debate because he can stay to his talking points. He won't move off of script all that much. But... After the first 45 minutes, that's when he will begin to fatigue, and that's when he'll move off script, and that's when the full pause will happen. But where is the greatest amount of viewership going to be? It's going to be in the first half hour. In the first, I'm just telling yep. you. So just be aware that the media has Biden's back, and they're going, if he gets out there and answers three or four questions strongly it's been a joe biden night and the president didn't do well i'm just telling you i can i can hear it coming i agree with that i do i think that that's what the you know the setup is is going to be for for biden but we also i mean look if this was any other election year with any other current president and joe biden was the democratic nominee it would be one of the biggest laughing stocks in campaign history because Biden has been really nowhere to be seen. Lately, he's been here and there. Um, but there's something seriously wrong with Joe Biden. Like, I don't know what it is. And it's sort of like we talked about, Dave, with COVID-19. We'll find out you know, later as to what all of this means. Uh, for the country. It's the same thing with Biden. There's something that's not quite right. He's delivered some speeches when he's got a teleprompter in front of him, uh, uh-huh. whether it's an interview or a speech, he does a lot better. I don't know that he is going to knock it out of the park in the first 45 minutes. I don't know if he will remember what he's talking about in the first five minutes. I just, I think there's a lot of unknown there. And I think the Biden campaign I think they would much rather not have any sort of debate and just, you know, cruise oh, on yeah. into November, um, you know, w- without any sort of face-to-face interaction with Donald Trump. I-, I just don't know what kind of Biden we are going to get on the debate stage. And I think it terrifies his campaign and it emboldens the Trump campaign because he will have all of the benefits from the media, but he has to actually put words together and be coherent, and I have not seen that off the cuff from Joe Biden at all during this campaign cycle. All right, spoken from a man who's run many a campaigns, uh, J.R. Davis here on the Dave Ellswick Show, and, of course, spokesman for the governor for many, many years. Uh, Seth will be back along with J.R., but we got to get our final break in. Let's do that. When we come back, uh, let's talk about George Soros. He's in the mix again. And let's talk about Bloomberg. He's in the mix again. And uh, both of them not in good ways. We'll talk about it when we continue on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. So uh, something went down in Louisville last night that concerns me. Uh, And this is being reported uh, by several different media outlets. Uh, 
Shortly after Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron announced that no criminal charges would be filed against the three Louisville police officers involved in the shooting of uh, Breonna Taylor, a video surfaced uh, online of a U-Haul truck parking in a a Louisville neighborhood near where a protest group formed, and members of the group began to unload shields, signs, and riot gear from the U-Haul. Uh, there are now reports that the U-Haul was rented by Holly Zoller, who is associated with the Louisville Bail Project. A phone call was placed to Zoller. She confirmed that she had, in fact, rented the U-Haul truck in question. A U-Haul employee provided the receipt, uh, which I, I'm getting a copy of, is uh, confirming that Zoller was the renter. And Zoller's page on the Bail Project TBTP website, where she is described as a bail disruptor, the Bail Project is a nationwide group with listings of dozens of bail disruptors and other positions among the team. And uh, you go through this uh, and you find out that at the bottom, a lot of the money is coming from George Soros. Now, this has been an ongoing narrative this year at these riots of uh, bricks and and baseball bats and all kinds of stuff showing up at these riots. And here's a, another example of that. And one of the um, uh, things that seems to be a, a common denominator is George Soros' name appears on the check. Uh, we just saw that the... Uh, uh, folks in Florida not taking uh, to Bloomberg very uh, well with his paying off uh, legal fines on, on felons so they can vote. And they're bringing a, a suit against him about that. In fact, a, a serious lawsuit that could cost him time in jail if he loses it. But, uh, you know, when when are they going to turn their attention towards George Soros? What do you guys say to that? Well, I saw the video you had mentioned of the U-Haul yesterday, and it was just, you you know, a lot of times we assumed where these things were coming from, but now we literally have a paper trail, and you don't have to leave much to the imagination there. And I saw somebody yesterday, and she's a right-of-center person, but very mild manner, and and generally tries to stay out of topics like this, anything political in nature, and she had posted something to the effect of, you know, at some point, are we going to start asking questions about <laughs> whose job it is to to send these U-Haul trucks with all this equipment? And I think yesterday when you saw the the video of people in the early morning yesterday boarding up folks who had their homes and businesses near or around the courthouse there in Louisville, uh, boarding up all the windows and their doors because – regardless of what news came out yesterday, good or bad, depending on your perspective, whatever the news was going to be, uh, there was going to be uh, damage to personal property in broad daylight. Uh, This wasn't even, you know, we've seen the images of Minneapolis where it it was the fiery but peaceful protest that CNN said, you know, and and we've seen these things happen at night, even here in Little Rock, but this was in broad daylight yesterday. You you saw people going around and, and busting out about every window around the courthouse, you know, that wasn't boarded up. So, uh, but I think people are are waking up to this and, and who's funding these efforts. 
um, because we're seeing a pattern. Every time this happens, people are always, boy, aren't they well-equipped for a protest today? <laughs> right. Yeah. Noon, you I, know? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And the we talked about the media bias and, and throughout this entire, I mean, it's been happening for years, obviously, but with the coronavirus, you know, these, these news stations are for-profit, you know, corporations they they know what drives viewership they want things to be dramatic but there's also this idea too of the cancel culture that that these anchors these reporters everyone is just afraid to call a spade a spade right to say that this is happening or to look into it or just simply ask the questions um and i think you know for anyone that watches the news or picks up the paper and takes whatever they read or whatever they see in here as the gospel. Um, it's, it's naive, especially in today's environment. We're not getting the full story. We're not even giving the tip of the iceberg most of the time. Um, and I agree with Seth. I mean, I think people are, are starting to finally uh, ask some key questions, but you know, as long as we kind of have this culture in America where everyone's afraid to say anything because they're, you know, they think that they're, they're, uh, personal lives will be ruined because of a question. Uh, as long as we're there, I mean, we're never going to have any sort of, uh, you know, legitimate uh, news coming from these mainstream media outlets. And it's frustrating, and, you know, but I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Now, okay, before we get uh, done today, it would be remiss of me if I didn't talk about on Saturday at around 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock our time, the president's going to name who his nominee is going to be uh, to fill the vacancy of uh, the the death of Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And it's looking more and more like it's going to be uh, Amy uh, Barrett. And uh, I'm, I'm a big supporter of Amy Barrett. I've liked what she has done in the past. I like her belief system and uh, but the left does not and there are early signs going on right now that as i said during the kavanaugh hearings if you thought this is bad wait till the next one happens because it swings the complete power of uh, the supreme court and uh, and the left knows that and this is going to get really ugly i mean well, we already saw that they were going to attack her religion. That started back in 2017 when they approved her as a federal appeals court judge in Chicago. And that's when Diane Feinstein said, uh, you know, your religion is is strong in this one, playing Yoda, basically. And uh, Newsweek jumped on the judge with a smear that was totally factually wrong in just the last couple of days. And, and, and let's just be honest here. Barrett is a devout Roman Catholic. Uh, the magazine uh, describes her uh, as a member of the people of praise. Quote, the charismatic Christian parachurch organization, which was founded in South Bend, Indiana in 71, that teaches that men have authority over their wives. Members swear a lifetime oath of loyalty to one another and are expected to donate at least 5% of their earnings to the group, unquote. Well, let me say this. I, uh, I belong to uh, the church uh, there in, in Cabot, uh, and uh, uh, 
I pledge 10% of my income to my church. Would that be a big deal if I came up for a, a state position or a, a, a federal position in this country now that I back up what I believe with my money? This is crazy stuff now. And you know what's really bad, guys? This is from the party that argued against these exact same things in 1960 with John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've already seen the smear start, too, in particular yeah. with Amy with Amy Barrett. It has already started. You mentioned Feinstein. I, it's funny to point out, of course, that the quote she had off the top of my head was, the dogma lives loudly within you, <laughs> which was very Yoda-esque. But Feinstein has played a role in all of President Trump's nominees. When talking with Gorsuch, she talked about the idea of super precedent which wasn't a thing, but that was a highlight from the Gorsuch hearing. Of course, it was Feinstein's office that received the complaint about Judge Kavanaugh that held on to it till uh, at the end of the committee uh, meeting. And then once again, with Amy Coney Barrett, who by all measures, it looks like is going to be the nominee, though I wouldn't entirely rule out Judge Lagoa of Florida. The president does like a curveball every once in a while. That might be a good one. She might be a good one, too, to be honest with you. You know, Jr. what do you think? I mean, uh, it looks to me like the Democrats are going to come in, you know, with their battleships and all guns lowered and just blasting away. But where does that leave Biden then? I mean, he's going to be a bad. No, you're exactly right. This is setting up just like 2016. Uh, This is exactly the sort of wedge issue that the Trump campaign needs. And, And let's just be, you know, very clear Uh, in the last little bit of this hour, this is going to happen. Uh, Democrats are going to pitch a fit. They can fire everything they want to fire at the ship they they hope to sink. It's not going to happen. Mitt Romney coming out saying that he wants to vote on it. And here's the other thing, too. At the end of the day, uh, Susan Collins, win or lose, she will vote uh, for the nominee. It may be after the election, but she's going to do it. Hey, let me ask a quick question. Can you guys stick around for just one more segment? Sure. Yeah. All right. Stay where you're at. We got more to talk about on the Dave Ellswick Show. And uh, lucky for us, J.R. Davis and Seth Mays have agreed to stick with me here for a little while longer talking about these, uh, and I'm going to say it this way, incendiary political topics that are out there. And they're not incendiary because of me. They're incendiary because of where our country is right now. Uh, when uh, they start convening the hearings of whoever this nominee is from the president and There's a good reason for a lot of times for us talking about Amy Barrett. I mean, she just spent another day at the White House. 
going yep. through uh, going through questioning with them. So I've got to believe that she's the major front runner here. But uh, the uh, Cuban American born uh, uh, lady from uh, down in Florida also is uh, significantly being pushed by uh, a lot of different people. But Barrett is the one that the, the left has already lowered their uh, the gun barrels at. Uh, this uh, story from Newsweek said that uh, uh, Margaret Atwood, who is the um, Handmaid's Tale uh, author, specifically based her book on this group that uh, uh, Barrett belonged to, and that is a flat-out lie. That the People of Praise was not what she uh, did. She did mention a group as being the inspiration for her work. A New Yorker profile of the author from 2017 mentions a newspaper clipping as part of her research for the book of a different charismatic Catholic group called The People of Hope. And Newsweek said, we regret our error, probably on page 9 in the middle of the magazine somewhere. Uh, The National Review said the attacks over the last few days have been steeped in anti-Catholicism over types of bigotry and lazy air. I mean, if the Republicans brought this kind of stuff up, oh, you know, OMG, I'm just saying, OMG, as far as the media was concerned. How about the liberal site Refinery29, who called Barrett, quote, the potential RBG replacement who hates your uterus there you go i i i i need to get a poster of that that's <laughs> i mean that's that's really beyond the pale to say the least you know, so l- let me start with you seth and and i'm going to just play off of what jr said at the end of last hour the left won't be able to control themselves when the hearings happen if it happens to be barrett or if it's, uh, was it Loja? Is that how she pronounces her last name? Uh, Lagoa. It, Lagoa. If it's either one of them, they're going to come at them with guns blazing. More so, I think, at yep. Barrett than, than a Lagoa, uh, Lagoa. She already went through confirmation as well. They were much nicer to her because she's Hispanic and her family's uh, fled Cuba and, uh, you know, the totalitarian regime. But. This is going to leave, uh, you know, their presidential candidate hanging out in the wind if they attack a woman with just venom like this. Right. And the interesting thing about Barbara Lagoa, if that is the the nominee, and, and I agree with you, Dave, I think it's going to be Barrett. She was sort of the second option uh, juxtaposed to Kavanaugh last time around. And so that sort of, you know, makes her the front runner this time around, but never discount that the president is meeting with Judge Lagoa on Friday and Uh then making the announcement on Saturday. So it's you always like to be the last person in the room, so to speak, you know, and kind of have the last word. So never discount the curveball. But you're right with Judge Barrett. They will no doubt uh, go after her. She's a graduate of Notre Dame, which would make her the only justice, if confirmed, to not be educated at at an Ivy League college. Um, She's (laughs) a mother of seven, including two Haitian adoptees, and she's a devout Catholic. And we've already seen 
from her circuit court nomination and Senator Feinstein of California, who, who said you really can't separate your faith and your work. The dogma, quote, lives loudly within you. And so that's sort of been a a battle cry for conservatives who follow the court. And don't forget, there are, of course, political ramifications for everything. There is nothing that unifies conservatives and Republicans like court nominations. You can say what you will about Mitch McConnell, but uh, I, I read his memoir, and he says very early he knew in life he wanted to be the majority leader of the United States Senate. You know, a lot of people run for the Senate so that they can run for president, like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, who who were elected very briefly and then, boom, ran for the Senate. The same thing with Rubio and Cruz on our side. But Mitch McConnell has always wanted to be the majority leader of the Senate, nothing more and nothing less. And part of this is to confirm judges. He himself was a a county judge in Kentucky before running for the Senate. So this is his last work, and there's nothing that unifies us more than Supreme Court judges, and I think Lagoa, but especially Coney Barrett, you couldn't ask for a more unifying force going into Election Day than a former law clerk of Antonin Scalia and a devout Catholic uh, being put on the Supreme Court. All right, let me just jump in here and say for my pro-life folks, and everybody knows how pro-life I am, something that has not been made public very much about Barrett is that one of the children that she carried the term had Down syndrome, and she knew it. And yep. she, she didn't, she didn't uh, abort that child. She had that child. And I have the utmost respect for that woman. Let me turn my attention back now to, to J.R. after that. J.R., your thoughts on all of this? My thoughts are, you know, President Donald Trump will have uh, – uh, appointed three Supreme Court justices before he's done as president. I mean, that's a fact. It's going to happen. You're right. The Democrats are going to lose their minds over this. It's not ideal for Joe Biden and his camp. Uh, to Seth's point, there's nothing that unifies the Republican base like, you know, a Supreme Court justice appointment. We saw this in 2016. I mean, how many people said in 2016, maybe they didn't like Trump, but hey, I'm voting for Trump because it's a vote for the Supreme Court. Like that, that is a lot of the mindsets. So what you're going to see happen over the next 40 days or so is you're going to see some soft Republicans who may not like uh, the style of President Trump come home to the party because it's a vote for uh, a Supreme Court uh, nominee. And so I say all that to say the Democrats are going to lose their mind. They know they are going to lose this. They cannot win it. Uh, you've already had, you know, some of their hopes and Mitt Romney uh, and, and some, you know, kind of swing votes, uh, quote unquote, that have come out and said, yeah, I want to vote for the nominee. I have no problem with that. Uh, Susan Collins is, you know, in their minds is one that is in a tough pickle because she's got this reelection bid. But here's here's the catch in all that. They're going to go through these you know, hearings and go through the process. And so the vote may not take place until after the election. And that does not matter because if Susan Collins loses, she's a vote for Amy Barrett. If Susan Collins wins, she's a vote for Amy Barrett. Like this has set up. I, I don't know if there could be a more perfect setup for Republicans uh, for a, a Supreme Court nominee uh, I don't know if there's ever been a, a more perfect timing uh, for a party 
uh, in a situation like this. So this is going to unify the base. Uh, Trump is going to have a third pick on the Supreme Court, and the Democrats can't do anything about it. And to that point, Dave, they are going to lose their minds through this process, and it's just going to hurt uh, Joe Biden even more because it's going to fracture his base even more. Yeah, I I think uh, to to your point that uh, that that that's very very true. They will not be a even though they know that it could cost them the election. They will not be able to control themselves because their holy sacrament is abortion. That is the Democrat mm. Party's holy sacrament. Ask Joe Biden. He says he's a devout Catholic, but. His religion doesn't come up because he's a Democrat. Yeah, well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. We had talked about Newsweek in the Handmaid's Tale title. They had an article not so long ago, uh, Joe Biden, how his Catholic faith informs his race for the presidency. (laughs) If that isn't a clearer depiction of how conservatives and liberals are treated in the media, we're talking about the same issue here, deep Catholic faith. Okay, and it covered entirely different. And of course, the woke Democrats, the the party of the woman, we're about to find out how much uh, respect they have for women in the uh, judicial profession. It's about to be on full national display and never undercount what, you know, we say the swing vote is suburban moms around the country. What are they about to see take place, you know, in the final weeks leading up to an election? Uh, They're going to see vitriol from the Democrats, double standards because they don't have any others, uh, berating a woman of faith on TV because she's religious. And I think that is not going to set well with voters. J.R., you you were going to say, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, think about this for a moment. The Democrats can't not lose their minds over this. They have a base. They, They have to. They have to show the left, the most left part of the party that they're fighting for them. They have to. If they don't, they, they basically are in a rock and a hard spot here. They either let that base down and, you know, tamper the enthusiasm for the election because they don't do anything or they go, you know, fly off half cocked at this, you know, nominee uh, and make it such an issue that it hurts Joe Biden's campaign. There's just, and this would, you know, look, it, it just happens to be the Democrats all that on that end this time around. But that you can't just sit idly by, even though you know you're going to lose, and do nothing. It's going to be a circus, and that is just like, I mean, it, it's going to be. I just can't imagine what the what the Biden campaign is thinking right now with this issue, with the debate coming up and not knowing exactly if he has all of his faculties about him and what he's going to say, what he's going to do with all this other stuff going on. It is going to be a, a an unbelievably enjoyable circus to watch over the next 40 to 45 days. All right. We have to get a break in. You guys, uh, you make up your mind whether you want to stick around or not. Let Heidi know. I'll get back to you in just a moment. It is the Dave Ellswick Show. There's just so much to talk about right now. There is so much going on in politics. There's so much going on in our culture that uh, I've asked both Seth and Jr. to stick around so we can continue uh, to talk. And uh, I've, I've been talking to you about PI roofing for years. I want to talk to you about them for just a few moments. Uh, we've had, you know, rain 
all yesterday and the day before. And uh, if you've noticed any kind of leaks uh, in your roof, then I can only, uh, I can't more highly uh, tell you uh, that you need to call PI Roofing because they're your roof leak detectives. Uh, they're the best roofing company I've ever dealt with uh, in, in my uh, history of, uh, you know, taking care of roofs uh, here uh, in, in Arkansas or in other states where I have lived. They are the bomb as far as I'm concerned. Here's the other thing that they're really good about. Uh, they are excellent dealing with uh, helping the community. Uh, several years back, during the time that B.B. was the governor of Arkansas, uh, I had a group called Arkansas Cares. And I always believed that Arkansans and, and, uh, and people, uh, the neighbors of other people, should take care of their neighbors. And I would ask businesses to help out with that from time to time. I had a 501c3 uh, on that, and uh, PI Roofing never turned me down. Here's what they did. Uh, there was a couple of occasions people had terrible roofs, did not have the money to fix them, didn't have uh, insurance, and uh, uh, they went in and they totally fixed those roof. All right, just to let you know that. All right, with that said, I want you to call them, just like I call them. I'm going to give you the exact same number I have to get their uh, get them out to my house. That's uh, 707-3551. 707-3551. 3551. They will take good care of you. They're the professionals I highly recommend. They're, they take care of, of Arkansans. They take care of people who can't take care of these things by themselves. Joel Johnson, Veronica Johnson, are good Christian people, and they have a great, great business. That's PI Roofing. You can also visit them at piroofing.com. All right, 26 minutes after 7. We've got Rush coming up in about four minutes, and we'll get there. Uh, Seth and uh, JR were not able to continue here on the show today, which is understandable. They're really busy guys. JR, of course, we're 40 days out from uh, the election in November. He's got all kinds of uh, uh, local elections that he's working on uh, with the Gilmore Group, as well as working on uh, a national election with uh, Congressman French Hill. And, uh, you know, I'll get him on in the future to talk about uh, the congressman's uh, campaign and how things are going. Uh, I don't do that with the congressman. I had congressman on to talk about news of what's happening uh, in Washington, D.C. And so um, uh, we'll get back and, and talk about, you know, stories that have been out here lately. Uh, in in the media uh, that I, I I find highly questionable, but uh, I want to go back to Diane Feinstein for a moment, Senator Feinstein. Uh, when Amy Barrett was up for a confirmation uh, earlier, uh, dealing with court systems, federal court systems, uh, she looked at uh, uh, Barrett and said that. Barrett's Catholic beliefs are giving many on the Democratic senator's side, quote, 
this very uncomfortable feeling, adding, quote, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly uh, within you. And, you know, kind of a Yodaism there, the way that she she said it. But again, I want to go back because Seth said it so well during the last segment, uh, talking about the double standard here. You've got Barrett because she's a Roman Catholic. She speaks uh, uh, out about uh, and doesn't hold back that 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 she's pro-life and uh, has belonged to groups dealing with pro-life and that she belongs to a Bible study with a group that uh, perhaps doesn't hold uh, religious views of uh, some things that other Protestant groups do. Uh, within the Catholic faith, the belief that the man is the uh, the the head of the marriage is uh, that, that's a non-starter, or should be, uh, if you look at their history and what they have taught. So, um, with Biden though, and and Biden quote, he says, "Hey, I'm a practicing uh, Catholic. If I'm not mistaken, so is uh, Pelosi." And, uh, you know, nobody challenges them because of their religious beliefs, because they say, but see, they're pro-life or not pro-life, they're pro-choice. So uh, their their Catholicism is no problem at all. I mean, it goes back to like this liberal site, Refinery29, who said about Barrett, Quote, the potential RBG replacement who hates your uterus, ladies. I don't think that's true. I think that if you read what Barrett has said many times, you wouldn't feel that that's true. When she talks about the judgeship, she doesn't say, well, you know, when he's a judge. She says when she's a judge all the time. She believes in equality and she believes in women. All right, we got to get to uh, to uh, rush. Let's do that right now. All right, twenty five minutes uh, to seven o'clock here on the uh, the Dave Ellswick show. Uh, Want to talk a little bit about more about Amy Barrett because there's things that you're not going to hear during the confirmation hearing that I think that you need to hear now so that you go in. Uh, knowing who Amy Barrett is. After William Rainsberger, this is from Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian-leaning magazine uh, and that I subscribe to. After William Rainsberger was arrested for murdering his 88-year-old mother, he spent two months in jail before he was released on bail. A year later, prosecutors dropped the case, citing a lack of evidence. That decision was not surprising because Rainsberger's arrest had been based on a probable cause affidavit written by an Indianapolis detective who misrepresented crucial facts and omitted exculpatory information. The detective, Charles Brenner, nevertheless argued that Rainsberger could not sue him under uh, 42 USC 1983, which is a federal statute that allows people to seek damages when government officials violate their constitutional rights. 
In a 2019 opinion, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit demolished Benner's argument that he was protected by qualified immunity, a court-invented doctrine that limits such claims to cases in which officials are accused of violating clearly established law. Uh, That opinion is of several uh, special interest to critics of qualified immunity, which in many cases has protected police officers from liability for shocking behavior. Because it was written by Seventh Circuit Judge Amy Barrett, who is reportedly the leading contender to replace Ruth Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, in addition to supporting legislation that would limit or abolish qualified immunity, its critics hope the Supreme Court will reconsider the doctrine in an appropriate case. While the Seventh Circuit's decision in Rainsberger versus Benner does not reveal how Barrett would vote in such a case, it does suggest she is not the sort of judge who, quote, bends over backwards to protect police officers who are accused of outrageous misconduct. Ruth Rainsberger, who suffered from dementia, had three children. William was the most attentive, looking in on her every day, buying groceries for her, helping her with her finances. Then he visited her on a Tuesday afternoon in November of 2013, according to his account. He found the door to her apartment unlocked, found his mother lying face down on the floor in a pool of blood, her head and shoulders covered by a bloody blanket. He called 911 and reported that someone had bashed his mother's head in. Benner zeroed in on Rainsberger as his prime suspect early on, speculating that he had killed his mother for his share of the 80000 to $100,000 in savings he and his siblings would inherit. Two months after the murder, Benner wrote a probable cause affidavit that local prosecutors deemed inadequate. Five months later, he wrote another affidavit that was Nearly identical, but included some new details. This time, prosecutors agreed there was enough evidence to charge Rainsberger with murder, but that evidence was either misleading or blatantly false. Benner alleged that Rainsberger had called his mother or his brother from their mother's apartment uh, nearly an hour before he called 911, suggesting a conspiracy to kill her for her money. And we go on uh, to find out. Uh, that a lot of this stuff was just a bunch of hokum made up by the detective. Uh, anyway, the call routed through a tower in Chicago actually showed that Rainsberger, consistent with his account, had talked to his brother after calling 911 to report the attack. Benner chose to use the inaccurate and incriminating time uh, that he called before the murder in his affidavit. Barrett noted in an opinion joined by the two other judges on the Seventh Circuit panel that, uh, you know, there had been a lot of stuff put in, in this uh, the affidavit that just wasn't true. Uh, and you can go through the whole thing. I, I, I want to get to what Barrett uh, uh, said about all of this. Because you get to the end of it, and Barrett says, an officer violates the Fourth Amendment if he intentionally or recklessly includes false statements in a warrant application 
and those false statements were material to a finding of probable cause, Barrett noted. An officer similarly violates the Fourth Amendment if he intentionally or recklessly withholds material information from a probable cause affidavit. So Barrett had little trouble concluding that police did not have probable cause to arrest Rainsberger without Benner's alleged lies. Without those, she said, the remaining evidence supports nothing more than bare suspicion. She rejected Benner's argument that he could have obtained the valid warrant if he had proceeded differently, saying that is, quote, besides the point, since the question is not whether an officer could have satisfied the warrant clause, but whether he actually uh, satisfied it. Would it have been clear to a reasonable officer in this situation that his conduct was unlawful? Barrett said she thought it would. She was unimpressed by Benner's claim that he is entitled to qualified immunity if the facts of the hypothetical affidavit without the misrepresentations demonstrate arguable probable cause. In other words, if a competent officer faced with the facts in the hypothetical affidavit could reasonably, if mistakenly, believe that those facts were sufficient to establish probable cause. That argument, she said, doesn't make sense because qualified immunity depends on how a reasonable officer would have understood the law in the same situation, not in a counterfactual scenario. So here you have a conservative, you know, protecting a defendant against a rogue police officer. Tell me that this is not somebody that you wouldn't want on the Supreme Court. This is exactly the kind of person I do want on the Supreme Court. And let me finish up by saying this. What Benner is really arguing then is that he is entitled to qualified immunity if a well-trained officer could reasonably but mistakenly conclude that it was lawful to include an incriminating lie in an affidavit because the lie wasn't material to the probable cause determination. Of course, a competent officer would not even entertain that question, whether it was lawful for him to lie in a probable cause affidavit. The hypothetical officer in the qualified immunity analysis is one who acts in good faith. That is what the standard of objective reasonableness is designed to capture. That, my friends, is the essence of the law. And thank you to... Justice Barrett uh, for that well-reasoned opinion, which goes along with my my new uh, magnet on my uh, refrigerator. Think it's not illegal yet. All right, let's get a break in quarter till eight. We got still a few other things we need to deal with coming up at eight o'clock. Got a guest coming in from uh, or coming over the phone with me. Uh, from up in Searcy, uh, from Harding, to talk about a new uh, program that they're starting that you need to know about. That's going to be up at the uh, 6 o'clock tonight uh, on the Dave Ellswick Show. So stick around for that. All right, we've got 10 minutes left here in this hour, and I want to play a a short uh, audio clip about uh, Amy Barrett. 
And she gave a speech at Hillsdale uh, College, which is a, a great college that believes in the Constitution and, uh, and teaches the Constitution and that believes in free markets and things of that nature. And uh, she was talking about judges, and she used the story about, at the time, uh, uh, not, you know, defendant uh, uh, lawyer John Adams after the Boston Massacre. Use your history a little bit. Uh, the shooting on Boston Common that killed some uh, uh, folks uh, there from Boston by uh, Redcoats. And uh, John Adams took up their case. And he he literally uh, got them, uh, some of them, he got them totally acquitted. Uh, the officer was totally acquitted. And uh, as well as uh, got them from not having the death penalty and she uses that to talk about a judge and here's what she had to say it's about 60 seconds john adams put aside personal preferences he stood up to public pressure and he did his duty and moreover he did it to the best of his ability he didn't do his grudging minimal best he did his absolute best and the captain was acquitted and most of the soldiers were and those who were not escaped the death penalty now john adams did these things as a lawyer but adhering to duty in the face of a contrary personal or political preference and in the face of public pressure to the contrary has particular resonance for the job of a judge. A judge is obligated to apply the law as it is and not as she wishes it would be. She is obliged to follow the law even when her personal preferences cut the other way or when she will experience great public criticism for doing so. I like that. And did you notice he said when she, so she made it personal at that point. She made it personal at that point. So uh, I think Amy Barrett would be a great Supreme Court uh, judge. And uh, I think we're going to find out and we're going to see that as the years roll by. Now, I'm not saying that the president couldn't come up, you know, out of left field and, and throw somebody else up. But I'm just saying that they really have her, I think, uh, set up for this. It was the president who said the reason he didn't put her up uh, for Kavanaugh's uh, vacancy was because he was saving her uh, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg if she passed so or retired. So that's something to keep in mind as well. All right. Now, a lot of people are saying or asking, why are the Republicans so united on doing, you know, bringing this uh, and filling this position now? Wouldn't the fair thing to be to do uh, to wait until after the election so that if Donald Trump would happen to lose uh, the new president who the people have chosen gets to put somebody on the court. Well, that's assuming that, number one, that Trump's going to lose, which I don't believe that's going to happen. Uh, But number two, it is the president's responsibility under the Constitution to nominate people for the Supreme Court, just like Barack Obama did as we were moving towards uh, the election in 2016. The difference 
in these instances is that at that time uh, the uh, Senate was controlled by Republicans. They advise and consent, and they either confirm or deny uh, uh, somebody uh, from being a Supreme Court justice. And the, the Republicans were not going to confirm, uh, you know, America it just wasn't going to happen. And now you got the situation where you got a Republican president ready to nominate to a Republican Senate, and they are ready to go. Now, why are they so ready to go? Why are they so bound and determined? Well, I thought that uh, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham said it so well, it took him a couple of minutes to say it because, you know, he's from, he's from the South, so he speaks a little slower. But listen to what he has to say about why he personally wants to get this whole thing done. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman. He'll be presiding over all of this. Lindsey Graham, Senator, welcome to the program. It's interesting how all the precedent was broken by them, right? Now they're threatening yeah, what? Stack I mean, what the it, court? Right. It's pretty obvious they want an outcome. They'll destroy anybody's life to keep these seats open. They said they tried to destroy Brett Kavanaugh so they could fill the seat. They were dumb enough to say that. I've seen this movie before. It's not going to work. It didn't work with Kavanaugh. We've got the votes to confirm uh, Justice Ginsburg replacement before the election. We're going to move forward in the committee. We're going to report the nomination out of the committee to the floor of the United States Senate so we can vote before the election. That's the constitutional process. After Kavanaugh, everything changed with me. They're not going to intimidate me, Mitch McConnell, or anybody else. I'm getting outraised three to one, outspent four to one. If you want to help me fight back, go to lindsaygram.com. Five or ten bucks from half your audience would fill in the gap that I'm facing. But we're going to have a process that you'll be proud of. The nominee is going to be supported by every Republican in the Judiciary Committee. And we've got the votes to confirm the judge, the justice on the floor of the Senate before the election, and that's what's coming. Senator, they, they want to stack the court. They want to end the filibuster for even legislation. They're yes. talking about impeaching the president, impeaching the attorney general. All the precedent had been broken so far by Democrats. Um, now they're going to take it to this level? Do you? Because they they've already liberal. done it before. Why would, they, why would we not believe them now? Name one liberal justice nominated by a Democrat that had their life ruined. Uh, they're talking about changing the Electoral College. If they keep the House, the Senate, and the White House, this country will change fundamentally. The Electoral College will be uh, uh, obliterated, will go to a popular vote. D.C. and uh, the, uh, Puerto Rico will become states. There'll be 104 senators. Uh, it goes on and on and on. There'll be additional members of the Supreme Court. They'll all be liberal. They're going to take the process, the rules, and change them to their benefit. Now, the only thing stopping them is you, the voter. If you want to help me and other Republicans get into the game, they're killing us financially. I'm in South Carolina, not exactly a liberal state. My opponent it's going to raise $80 million. I need conservatives to help me. You need to help us all. LindsayGraham.com. All right. There you have Lindsey Graham, of course, asking for help in his campaign, but also going into the way they feel about how this process of Supreme Court justices has been carried out in the past when it's a liberal justice versus when it's a conservative justice. So, you know, I always just draw back and talk about, you know, Bork, uh, 
uh, and the way he was treated when he was up for the Supreme Court. A brilliant, brilliant uh, judge. And and if you want to read a great book, read, read his book, Slouching Towards Gomorrah. It's more relevant today than it was when he released it, I don't know, maybe almost 20 years ago. Great book. Uh, yeah, that's think. It's not illegal yet. I mean, just look at what's what's happened when, uh, you know, the uh, the Democrats bring somebody up. Uh, look, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was up, they didn't bring up her being a practicing Jew as being something that was going to determine how she saw the outcome of a of a case. They never they never said anything about it. But she was a hardcore practicing Jew. Didn't make any difference. She uh, dealt with the law of the country. All right, a break. The Dave Ellswick Show. We're going to have Harding University on with us when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show, 6 o'clock, part of our show. Uh, We recorded earlier in the morning. Uh, If you're watching on Facebook.com, you can listen to the uh, interview uh, right now, live as it's happening, or uh, you might want to, if you want to, go and listen to the podcast. It's at 101.1 FM, theanswer.com. And uh, or you join us at six o'clock and listen to it now. And Dr. Susan uh, D. Kale is with us. She is a RNCNE Dean of the Carr College of Nursing at Harding University. And uh, Doc, thanks for joining us today. And by the way, uh, is it all right if I just call you Susan? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, fantastic. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, I want you to I want to give you the opportunity to brag on Harding. Uh, you all have in the last few months uh, initiated several new programs, graduate programs at Harding University that no one else in Arkansas is doing, and Harding is really excelling and showing how they're excelling as a university. Would you agree with that? Uh, Yes, sir. I'm I'm very proud to be a part of the team that offers excellent uh, education. Uh, We seek to stay ahead of uh, what students need and want and how to prepare them for um, the job market and their future careers. Yeah, and the job market uh, in nursing is a good one, is it not? Yes, sir. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics states that uh, and through a 2026, the uh, professional nursing will grow uh, by 15 percent. 
in addition, there are many RNs that are of retirement age, and so there will be additional positions. So uh, nursing is a, is a growing, continues to be a growing and necessary field. Yeah, and, you know, let's be honest, man. People need good health care, and uh, the more uh, education you have, the better you're going to do in this field. Why don't you talk about this whole thing about uh, uh, a master's in, in nursing? Usually people say, well, I, you know, I, the nurses will say I'm a registered nurse, and, and that, like, puts you at the top of the pinnacle. But it sounds like to me you're, you're, rise, you're raising the pinnacle up even higher now. Yes, sir. That's perfectly said. Um, nursing, professional nursing or uh, entry to become a registered nurse can be entered at the associate degree and bachelor's level. But there are more programs in the U.S. that allow students to earn a master's degree to become a registered nurse. Uh, and as you know, the complexity of healthcare systems is growing. Um, for instance, in the recent pandemic, that the need for excellent nursing care in the ICUs and the COVID ICUs. So we we are planning to open in fall of 21 a master's entry into professional nursing. Met we call it the MEPIN program. And they will become registered nurses and learn how to take care of, of individual patients, as well as learn how to uh, lead and change and improve uh, healthcare systems. So they will learn healthcare administration topics. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the information that w I was presented, and I'm really uh, uh, amazed by it in that it says a Master's of Science in Nursing, this MSN degree, uh, yes, has sir. emphasis on healthcare systems, leadership, care coordination, safety, and quality, eligible to sit for the national exam to become registered nurses, master's entry into professional nursery, uh, nursing, or the MEPN program. Yes, sir. We will have uh, we'll have full information on our website at Harding slash Mepin M E P N. But it is a seventy two credit hour degree over five semesters. Uh, it can be completed in approximately twenty two months, and we will have uh, over a thousand clinical hours to prepare these students for their professional roles. All right. Is this going to be set up uh, so that somebody who is a RN right now that wants to add this master's to their their resume and challenge themselves to become better RNs, is this going to be a, are they going to be able to do this and still work at the same time? Or is this more, I mean, you're talking 15 hours a semester from what I can ascertain from what you just told me. Yes. Well, the, the difference is students do not have to be an RN. They can have okay. a BA or a BS, a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science from any degree. We have nursing prereqs, and then you enter. So you're learning how to you're learning healthcare systems and how to become an RN at the same time. We also are, are trying. We will we plan a second track. It's called an early MEPIN, in which a student can transfer to Harding with 90 credit hours and be admitted into the master's entry program. 
um, this program will allow a student in five, if they start as a freshman, will allow a student in five years to earn a Master of Science in Nursing uh, and become an RN. So nursing has many types of master's programs, and the the type you mentioned earlier, an RN can can go and become a master's level nurse and be a nurse practitioner, for instance. But this master's is uh, initial entry, so students do not have to be an RN to enter. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Uh, I'm reading here, and uh, it, it basically says that the MEPA is designed for students who decide on a professional nursing career later in their journey. In other words, they, they maybe they never thought about being a nurse, but now uh, they really want to get into the nursing field. This is going to give them a step up. Yes, exactly. So uh, students, uh, rather than getting an, a second BSN, students can can choose to earn a master's degree to become a registered nurse, or they can choose to have an accelerated route, and instead of four years for a BSN, they can spend five years to earn an MSN to become an RN. So this provides another option for a student. All right, so... Uh, let's talk when we come back because we got to get a. We're going to have to get a break in here uh, during this half hour about how this program, in uh, you know, works with diverse and uh, uh, you know really across the board clinical partnerships in the Searcy and Little Rock areas. I want to talk to you about that and let you. Uh, uh, ballyhoo that, so to speak, here. Our guest uh, from uh, Harding University is uh, Dr. Susan Kell. She's an RN, a CNE. She's the dean of the Carr College of Nursing at Harding. She's talking about the, uh, Harding launching their first master's entry into professional nursing uh, in Arkansas. That's coming up. Uh, we got more to talk about. There's a lot more that you need to know about it, like how do you get involved in it? Uh, where do you go to get more information uh, when we return here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Continuing uh, here in the 6 o'clock hour on the Dave Ellswick Show, and right now Dr. Susan Kale is with us, and uh, she is the dean of the Carr College of Nursing at Harding University. We're talking about a new program at Harding. They're launching a first master's entry uh, into professional nursing program in Arkansas. It's a, a one-of-a-kind type of program, and uh, they want you to know about it, uh, whether you've got a BA or a BS in some other kind of, of a field and you're being drawn towards the nursing field, this would be uh, a program you would be interested in. Or if you're already in nursing, and let's say you're RN and you just you want your master's, here's a, here's a perfect opportunity to do that. So, uh, Susan, let me just ask you to go back and kind of reiterate about what this is all about as, as far as this master's program. This is to help people that are wanting to get into nursing a little later on in their career, correct? Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, a student with a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science in any degree, and they've completed science prerequisites that we require, 
uh, may may apply to the master's entry into professional nursing, as well as we have two tracks. We have another track in which it only requires 90 undergrad credit hours plus the prereqs. Uh, which uh, is essentially a, an accelerated track to a Master of Science in Nursing. Wow. Um, uh, yes. is, this a, is, this pro, is this a program uh, that somebody who is working can do, or would you suggest that this is a program in the 22 months that you're going to basically be in it that you should be zeroing in specifically on just your studies? Great question. Um, we have students currently in our uh, nurse practitioner master's program and students in our bachelor of science and nursing program who work and manage their studies. It requires a very disciplined, consistent life, a lot of planning. Um, we typically recommend students work, work no more than uh, eight to ten hours a week. Because in this early entry master's program, we will typically require 20 clinical hours a week, 16 to 20 clinical hours a week, two days of clinical a week, as well as two days of classes. So um, it, it is um, very uh, demanding at the time. Uh, we're working hard to make it reasonable and doable and, and something that's exciting for the students as they realize their goals and dreams of becoming a registered nurse. Yeah, I mean, I understand people want to get into nursing now because it's a, it's a, it's, it's a field where a lot of people that are in it right now, like myself, uh, are coming to the ends of their careers and perhaps the fields that they're in, and, uh, and, and nursing would be no exception to that. And there's going to be a lot of openings and there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, yes, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics states that nur uh, professional nursing field is going to grow by 15% through 2026. An additional uh, fact within this uh, growth is that, that there is projected to be uh, 200,000 registered nurse at retirement age during this time wow. period. So there are additional positions. Um, our our Family nurse practitioner graduates and our registered nurse graduates currently at Harding uh, typically have jobs if they seek them before they graduate. Uh, um, nursing is an exciting field. It is a, a field with uh, many numerous possibilities uh, and, and settings. Uh, you can work in hospitals. You can work in all kinds of industry and business. Um, nurse practitioners, of course, can can set up their their clinics. So um, it is a it's a very exciting field. It's a needed field. Nursing has never it, the uh, impact and the significance of nursing, of course, has been um, highlighted during this pandemic. And so we we are committed to providing excellent preparation. Uh, and a reasonable quality learning experience so that students will be prepared for their professional roles. Yeah, I, I was sitting here and looking at the material, you know, we were talking about working and, and, and doing this as well. And uh, it says 72 credit hours over five semesters year-round, completed full-time in 22 months with, and this is important, with, 1,032 clinical hours. That's a lot of hours you're going to be on the floor somewhere or 
you know, behind a desk or whatever it is that you're zeroing in on that you're going to be called on to work on? Uh, the Harding Car College of Nursing is very fortunate because we have clinical affiliation agreements, of course, in the Searcy region with Unity Health, as well as many uh, quali- high-quality uh, healthcare facilities and organizations in the Little Rock area. And so we, um, our students, as I said, will participate 16 to 20 hours per week. In addition, uh, Harding has been blessed with uh, a high state-of-the-art um, simulation. Simulation is where we use life-size computerized mannequins to teach the students how to do nursing skills, how to communicate to patients, how to uh, implement uh, medication orders or other nursing tasks. And so we use these uh, state-of-the-art simulation labs to prepare them for these um, high-quality clinical experiences. And so we're grateful for the agreements and the partnerships we have in Searcy and in um, Little Rock. Yeah, just for my listener's sake, when you say a registered nurse now, we're not talking about a nurse walking typically the halls of a hospital anymore. It's been expanded exponentially over the last couple of decades. Yes, sir. No, uh, the graduates of this early entry MEPIN program will likely take registered nurse positions in hospitals. Okay. A lot of our BSN and our, I anticipate our MEPIN students will want to work in ICUs, intensive care units. A lot of them want to work in pediatric hospitals. Uh, they want to work in emergency uh, departments. They also want to just work in a med surge floor or they want to be a, a, an OR nurse. However, um, as I'm consulting with my nurse leader colleagues, we believe this master's entry in professional nursing graduate, th- their career trajectory in three to five years post-graduation will li- can likely, if they choose, uh, change. It can be more in leadership and more in indirect care indirect care, such as a nurse manager position or a um, infection control nurse or a different type of role. As you know, registered nurses and then nurse practitioner or advanced practice nurses are in all levels of the hospital and also all levels of community settings. So um, I know it's uh, all of our settings and our education preparation can be uh, confusing sometimes, but we want to make sure that, that students understand that uh, the master's entry into professional nursing, they do not have to be an RN to enter this master's program. That is the unique feature of this program that's beginning in fall 21. All right. So uh, you got plenty of time for people to to reach out and get more information on this and uh, apply. Where do they apply? Where do they go for that uh, information? What kind of paperwork are you all looking for? Bring us up on that. Yes, thank you. Uh, our website is Harding forward slash MEPN Mepin. Um, information full information will be on that site. We will ask for students to apply to a centralized a nursing centralized application system, and they will be given instructions on uh, what um, transcripts are needed, what uh, 
paperwork is ne needed, what references are needed. In the application process, we will set up Zoom interviews with students to let to get to know them better as well as allow them to get to know Harding and the Carr College of Nursing and the faculty better. Um, and we will uh, work hard to um, make sure that they understand the the requirements and the commitments of this five semester uh, program but we believe that this program is going to provide excellent patient care for a variety of set prepare them for excellent patient care in a variety of settings and I and I believe that they will be able to navigate lead within and improve um, complex healthcare systems. Currently, we're developing good quality improvement pro projects so that students will know how to look at any setting in any environment and, and uh, learn how to um, improve the processes, improve the patient care, improve the patient satisfaction. So we're, we're excited to offer this program. We're excited uh, to um, promote uh, professional nursing in the state of Arkansas because we believe nursing, nurses have an, a significant role to play. So, Susan, what you're telling me is what you all are doing at Searcy and what other things are happening here in the state is that health care in the state of Arkansas is moving forward at warp speed. I believe so. I, I believe that, of course, there are many universities uh, and colleges in Arkansas that are preparing excellent nurses. We are trying to fulfill a niche uh, and, uh, and promote a program that will further uh, increase the excellence of nursing in Arkansas. All right. Now, Deborah Nutt, she is the uh, MEPIN director from what my information says. Is that the person that they should ask for? Uh, yes, sir. They can. Uh, we have an email address, mepn at harding.edu, and she will uh -huh. respond to that. She is currently in simulation lab teaching uh, BSN students, but she or, she or I will be happy to answer any inquiry and, and talk with anyone. But, yes, yeah, she is the – Dr. Nutt is the director of the MEPIN program. All right, Dr. Susan Kell, RNCNE, Dean of the Carr College and Nursing Harding University, has been our guest. Thanks for giving us the time, Doctor. I am really impressed with Harding University and what they're doing in, in master's programs, and this is no exception. Thanks for the time. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and your time, sir. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. We appreciate you. All right. Dave Ellswick Show, we got one more half hour to go. That's coming up after the news. We continue on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show at 6 o'clock, and uh, there's really uh, some interesting information that came out by the Heritage Foundation dealing with COVID-19. Uh, and, and that is, you know, you, you watch the news and you would think that the COVID-19 virus is just rampaging across uh, the United States. Uh, and it's not true. Right now, two-thirds of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. have occurred in just 10 states. And stay with me because there's even more information I want to pass on to you. My goal all through the COVID-19 uh, that's been going on is for people to keep a level head. I mean, uh, this is not the Black Plague. 
that is, uh, you know, one third of the world's population is not dying from uh, COVID-19. Uh, I forget if it was one third or two thirds of the world's population that died from the bubonic plague. Uh, it was an immense, huge amount of people that died because we didn't understand one germs and viruses and how they how they were passed and things of that nature and so and they didn't understand about hygiene and rats and ticks and and things of those things and fleas and how uh, the 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 disease could be passed that way and so uh, people succumb to those diseases because of that we do understand a lot of that now and because of it, the way that we deal with these diseases and viruses is totally different and much better uh, than uh, what it was in, uh, you know, the dark ages, so to speak. As of July 14th, 2020, just 10 states account for 61 percent of all COVID-19 cases and 66 percent of all the deaths. The five states with the most cases are New York, California, Florida, Texas, and New Jersey. They report 43% of all U.S. cases and 45% of all the deaths. Together, New York and New Jersey alone account for 34% of the total COVID-19 deaths, though they are only 9% of the U.S. population. Now, these state-level figures do not, however, adequately describe the concentrated nature nature of the spread of COVID-19. Let's get into it a little deeper. And I know I'm taking you a little bit into the weeds But I think you'll understand why I am as we talk about this. The 30 counties, 30, and these 30 counties are of about 3,600 counties, parishes, etc. across the whole United States. So as you can tell, we're talking about a small percentage. Those 30 counties with the most COVID-19 deaths, for example account for nearly one-third of all the cases here in the United States. And, you ready for this? 49% of all the deaths, much greater than their 16% share of the U.S. population. So let's break this down even further. What that means is that 1% of the counties in the United States, representing 16%, of the U.S. population are responsible for approximately half, half of our country's COVID-19 deaths. Of those 30 counties, 24, a large percentage of the 30 counties, 24 of them are in the northeast corridor between Philadelphia and Boston, the passageway served by a commuter railway system that runs through Manhattan. Overall, only about 10% of the counties in the U.S. contain 90% 
of all the COVID-19 deaths, even though these counties include 62% of the population. So you're living here in Arkansas right now. Can I ask you to perhaps please chill a little bit? You don't live in one of these counties up in the uh, the northeast. If you're up there, I could understand your concern. Because uh, you're part of that 10% of the counties in the U.S. containing 90% of the COVID-19 deaths. Can also understand why some people are moving out of uh, these areas and going to live in other areas uh, of the United States where they feel, uh, you know, safer. Throughout the pandemic, there have been many U.S. counties with relatively few COVID-19 deaths. I, here in Lone Oak County in Arkansas, I think maybe one. Okay, one death. Uh For instance, as of May 11th, 64% of all the counties, that's 16% of the U.S. population, had one or fewer COVID-19 deaths. As of July 14th, 48% of all counties, 9% of the population, have no more than one COVID-19 death each. Well, these numbers are obviously declining since May. Many counties still have a relatively small number of COVID-19 deaths. In particular, as of July 14, 66% of all counties have five or fewer COVID-19 deaths. Now that COVID uh, testing has dramatically increased and many state and local governments have relaxed stay-at-home orders, It is even more critical to study the trends and deaths along with cases. Now, to make studying those trends easier, the Heritage Foundation now has two interactive COVID-19 trackers that you can use. One that tracks trends in cases while the other tracks trends in deaths. The trackers describe whether the trend of cases or deaths is increasing or decreasing over the prior 14 days and provides a visual depiction of new cases or deaths during this time period. And the tools will help put the concentrated nation, uh, nature of the pandemic in perspective with county-level data, and they show just how difficult it can be to use only one metric to gauge whether a county or state is doing well. Let me give you one, you know, one example here, and then I'm going to move on from this uh, particular story. For instance, Harris County in Texas has seen increases of cases over the past two weeks with a rate of 39 additional new cases each day for the past 14 days. On July 14th, the county had 2,001 new cases, the most of the two-week period. Deaths have seen an increase as well, with one additional new death above trend every five days. Another example was in DeKalb County, which is in eastern Indiana, which is also experiencing increasing cases. However, its new cases are only one above trend over the 14-day period, and it has had a total of 15 new cases over the past 14 days. 
DeKalb also ranks around the middle of the U.S. counties for cases with less than a half a percent of population recording COVID-19 cases. I'm going to forward this story to Elizabeth. I'll put it on my Facebook page. Uh, by all means, go to my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Dave Ellswick Show. And uh, as you read the story, there is a highlighted area that says Trackers Describe, which you can click on that takes you to the Heritage Foundation, and you can look at Arkansas. I think you'll be uh, you know, satisfied and breathe a sigh of relief as you look at uh, our state. Really important that you pay uh, attention uh, to all of this uh, out there. It's just really important that you look at this stuff uh, from uh, an island island of of thinking about it, understanding what's going on, and not panicking because what the media uh, is uh, telling you. I just want you to know that. Keep that in in mind. Uh, Definitely keep that uh, in mind, so I'll I'll post that to to Elizabeth here uh, in a short short, so that you'll know more uh, about it here uh, in in just uh, uh, before. Uh, I wanted to now move into something that uh, has been talked about and, and uh, ex- in, uh, excessively. The president brought it up yesterday about mail-in ballots and how. Uh, this election, like the election in 2000, uh, could be thrown into the Supreme Court and why it's important to fill that additional vacancy. You don't want a four, 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 when, uh, you know, you might be deciding an election. You want to get a decision. So you want to get, you know, if if nothing more, a 5-4 decision uh, from the court. But I want to talk about mail-in ballots. And uh, there is a dangerous thing happening here in the United States. Uh, They are weaponizing mail-in ballots. And that very well could end up creating a constitutional crisis. And uh, justices that have been uh, put in at the appellate level and things of that nature uh, by Democrats have a totally different uh, decision-making process than those who have been put in uh, by Republicans. Now, it doesn't cut that way 100%, but I would say probably 85 88% it does. And so it's very important to know that after the election on November 3rd, it could be weeks if not months before we know who the new president of the United States is, and I'll give you an aside about that here uh, in in just uh, in just a moment. Again, this is a, an, an article that I came across uh, that that I want to uh, share with you uh, about the, uh, the 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 mail-in ballot situation. So let's take our final break, give myself a few extra moments in the final segment here at the Dave Ellswick Show during the 6 o'clock hour here at 101.1 FM, The Answer. Final segment of the Dave Ellswick Show today, uh, a story that I'll uh, put on uh, my Facebook page 
uh, again so that you can read it as well. Uh, comes from uh, the Daily Caller, written by Fred Lucas, uh, dealing with mail-in ballots. And the uh, headline says how weaponizing mail-in ballots could create a constitutional crisis, which I referred to in the last segment, if you were with me during that time. The president himself brought it up yesterday. We've seen this happen not because of mail-in ballots, because of hanging chads in Florida back in, uh, what, the 2000. Uh, election between uh, uh, Bush and Gore. The ongoing process of weaponizing and abusing mail-in voting could lead to an unprecedented constitutional crisis that, according to uh, uh, a uh, couple of uh, congressmen, uh, Jim uh, Jordan of Ohio and James Comer of uh, Kentucky, Uh, Quoting from a report that they have put together from the Judiciary Committee, quote, this expansive and late shift to all male voting is going to create conditions ripe for election crime, errors, inaccuracy and delay. Democratic lawmakers in Wisconsin, Florida, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Minnesota and Nevada have been pushing these risky policies on mail-in voting and ballot harvesting. That's a process that allows political operatives to gather ballots from voters. That, according to the report from Jordan, the committee's ranking member and uh, Comer. I'll see if I can't get Jordan on. Uh, I'll uh, get in touch uh, uh, with French Hill's office and see if they can reach out and if he'll join us to talk about this. Ballot harvesting really, really uh, worries me. I am not happy with it at all. And people say, well, we've been doing it for, for a long time. Absentee ballots, not ballots that are being sent out to every voter. There's a distinct difference here. There are, there are processes set up for absentee voters that they are not including in mailing out these uh, 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 ballots Uh, as far as mail-in ballot voting. They're just sending it out to to an address, for instance, where somebody lived maybe five years ago, or maybe they don't live there anymore. But they they don't get a, a ballot with their name on it. They get a blank ballot. This is not good. They're not checking signatures. Heck, we're seeing that even here in Arkansas. I mean... With absentee ballots, we're seeing it here in Arkansas. We've talked about that in the last couple of months. There, there are some real problems out there that could, you know, cause everything to end up in the Supreme Court. And then, of course, uh, which other side loses is going to call it, it, it an illegitimate election. We have got to work hard to make sure that people are for sure that the electra, the electra, electoral uh, process here in this this country uh, is basically beyond reproach. I mean, there's going to be some areas, always is, always will be, but still, you can't make this where it's a, a banana republic. You can't do that. If you do that, there's going to be some real problems. Uh, if they're successful. Democrats could be sowing the seeds for an unprecedented 
constitutional crisis. The report notes that voter registration numbers exceed exceed 100% of the eligible voters in 378 counties across the United States. Understand, more voters than those registered to vote. That's ripe for election fraud. In 2005, a report by the Commission on the Federal Election Reform, chaired by former President Jimmy Carter, former Secretary of State James Baker, determined that voting by mail, quote, remains the largest source of potential voter fraud. Am I saying there definitely will be widespread voter fraud? No. I'm saying the potential is there. And uh, with the emotional uh, amount of excitement that is out there and uh, angst that is out there about this election, uh, it worries me. The House Republicans' new report notes that two prominent liberal newspapers, the New York Times and the Washington Post, have referred to problems with mail-in ballots. Back in October 2012, the Times reported that votes cast by mail are less likely to be counted, more likely to be compromised, and more likely to be contested than those cast in a voting booth. Also in October 2012, the Post reported that it may still be possible to steal an American election if you know the right way to go about it in efforts to sell votes. The Post continued... Recent court cases from Appalachia to the Miami suburbs have revealed the tricks of an underground trade. Conspirators allegedly uh, bought off absentee voters, faked absentee ballots, and bribed people heading to the polls to vote one way or another. The report says that two top federal health officials, Bricks and Falsy, have said that in-person voting during the COVID-19 pandemic is safe. Here in Arkansas, let me tell you, our Secretary of State has gone out of his way to make it safe. I mean, you're going to get be given your own little device to tap the screen and everything. You won't have to touch anything that somebody else has touched. I will be voting in person. I will not be voting by mail. In Wisconsin, Democrats sued to extend the deadline for absentee ballots in an April primary election, a Democratic-appointed judge ordered the state to extend that deadline to a week after Election Day, but the U.S. Supreme Court overturned him. Just those small stories like that should convince you that this whole mail-in balloting initiative is fraught with danger. And they're using COVID-19 as the reasoning behind it. Well, I'll tell you what. I want to protect the ballot box. And I don't like what I'm hearing. We'll talk about more of this in the future. 40 days from the election. It's the Dave Ellswick Show. See you tomorrow, 6 a.m. Right here, 101.1 FM, The Answer.